Welcome, everyone, to our March 2021 episode of our Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, the Conroy Center's Executive Director and also co-editor of the award-winning anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. Every month here on our show, I get to share some inspiring and insightful conversations about the writing life with a guest author. And my guest tonight is a figure both familiar and I would go so far as to say beloved to us in our Conroy Center circles. Estelle Ford-Williamson has been a guest instructor and featured author for us at the Conroy Center on many occasions, some of which we'll get to talk about tonight. And it's an absolute honor to host her here on the podcast in support of her recently published novel, Rising Fawn. Estelle is a novelist and a memoirist whose new book is set in Rising Fawn, Georgia, and has already won awards from the Sand Hills Writers Conference and the Atlanta Writers Conference. Her previous books were Abbeville Farewell, a novel of early Atlanta and North Georgia, and the co-authored Seed of South Sudan, a memoir of a lost boy refugee written with Majok Marrier. She has received Poets and Writers grants for readings and workshops in Atlanta and New York and has presented memoir workshops through our Conroy Center as well as the Lou Walker Senior Center in DeKalb County, Georgia. Estelle's short story, Between Georgia, which was drawn from a chapter in her novel, Rising Fawn, was a finalist for the Short Story America Festival in 2015. Born in Chattanooga, Estelle graduated from St. Mary's College in Notre Dame and worked as a reporter for UPI in Atlanta. She moved to our much-beloved South Carolina Low Country in 2016, where she now lives, writes, teaches, and is an active member of several local writers' groups and book clubs, many of which are affiliated with our Conroy Center. So, Estelle, welcome to the podcast tonight. Thank Thank you so much, Jonathan. I can't believe who that person is. I mean, she's done a lot, right? (laughs) But I'm so pleased to be here. I'm so pleased to be here. And and as you read, I thought, gosh, I have been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. Never thought I was going to be in Beaufort area, but um, here I am. We have grandchildren who are growing up here, six in one family, and um, and it it was just pure coincidence and a lovely coincidence that I got to be here at the very same year that the Pat Conroy Center was established, and I feel very, very grateful for all that you all do. So thank you, and thank you for inviting me here. Oh, absolutely. But you make a good point. Your your low country lighting, writing life and our Pat Conroy Literary Center have sort of grown up together these past few years. Uh, and it's, it's been true. a fascinating experience for me to discover just how many amazing writers there are and, and artists in the bigger sense, literary or otherwise, who make their homes mm-hmm. in the low country. There's this wonderful creative energy to this world that we get to share. And I think you've been experiencing that these five years too. I have. And and you personally are responsible for so much of it, Jonathan. I can't thank you enough and all that you oh. do. And the volunteers and the staff and the Conroy family, they're just amazing. Cassandra King is very involved in the Pat Conroy Center and, um, Marley Russoff, who was his uh, agent and is agent for other people, um, just every volunteer from Donna Armour to um, Kathy, uh, Kathleen Harvey, his sister. It, it's just amazing to me what goes on. And um, every person who gets on a, um, a Zoom show, I mean, talk about fortune. 
um, pandemic just really put such a hole in so many writers' plans. And then through the Pat Conroy uh, Center's Zoom programs uh, on on the Internet, people can join from anywhere. And it's just amazing. It is just amazing. You're spreading the spirit. We are indeed. And, and you've gotten to benefit from that a couple of times as an instructor yeah. for, you know, some of, our, some of our earliest Zoom workshops when we none of us had any idea what we were doing or if anybody would show up. We were just thrilled yeah. to discover that suddenly we had access to uh, an audience of writers well beyond our low country, people who, who perhaps never yeah. could have visited the Conroy Center or taken a class in person, were suddenly your students in, in these wonderful memoir uh, workshops that you taught for us. That's right. And, and that That's happens right. in our, in our uh, author programs as well. It's happening right now by virtue of this podcast, which is for around the world. So it's been wonderful for us to collectively discover we could reach so many people uh, from right here in Beaufort during, during this pandemic. From Little Beaufort, we're just reaching out over the waves, um, you know, and, and over the mountains and all across the country so and, and the world. So that's really exciting. Um, I actually sent emails to some of my classmates from St. Mary's College, whom I have not seen in many years, some of them at all, in many years since graduation. Um, so I'm going to invite them, if they, if they are listening or anybody who's listening who have any comments, get in touch with me through my website, and um, we'll say, hey. It's uh, www. Estelle Ford Williamson with a hyphen between Ford and Williamson. dot com. So I'll go ahead and mention that. I, I will really be interested because I know Jonathan. I'm surprised when when you all have Facebook Live um, uh, readings or uh, announcements, and people will say where they're from, and, and it is it is very exciting. And I'm, I think on some of the open mics, you've had people from Ireland and other places. Um, who've joined in and, and read their work. So that's that's exciting. Um, yeah, the Low Country Writers, uh, South Carolina Writers Association group that you have at the center has been one of those that I read pieces of Rising Fawn to. I have to say that that book started long before I even thought I would ever live here. Um, <laughs> but it, it was um, in the latter stages, in the latter chapters that people were uh, well, I had read some of the people in the group heard it from the very beginning, but um, it was it was really you know good writing is good writing, or and bad writing is bad writing. So um, people were able to give me feedback, and it was very helpful to have that to have that place where I could read it out loud to somebody other than myself, and get really con- um, kind but very specific feedback. So that was thank you for that opportunity. We have the most amazing uh, writing groups in Beaufort, and, and you mentioned one, sure, our, our Low Country Writers Workshop, uh, which is a, our sort of local affiliate of the South Carolina Writers Association, our statewide organization, which uh, is, is generally chaired by Stephanie Austin Edwards, who was a classmate of Pat's at Beaufort High School a couple of years behind Pat, and has been a part of you know, many things the Conroy Center has done, and, and the aforementioned Our Prince of Scribes as well. But uh, I think there's a, another writers group you're a part of too, the, the the short story America group, right? As well, would you want to say a little right. something about that? Sure. Um, when I first came, uh, one thing that I wanted to do was to be part of the Pat Conroy Literary Center. But before we moved, um, I submitted a story to Short Story America Festival. I was living in Atlanta at the time, 
And um, it was accepted, and it was a finalist in uh, 2017, I think it was, a short story festival. And as a result of that, it was published in um, volume six, uh, what's called Short Story America. Uh, short Story America is a um, uh, it's led by T.D. Johnson, who is a short story writer himself and an MFA graduate um, of uh, one of the um, MFA programs. I think at Antioch College, and he uh, is very skilled at what he does, and he actually had books. Uh, he has one story that's actually turned into a movie at this point, Friday afternoon. And he, we we were so impressed with the festival, which brought in lots of speakers, we asked him if he would be willing to give a workshop to some of us who attended the festival. And about 10 people signed up, and we stayed constant with that um, for, I think, for about 11 weeks. And then since then, we formed ourselves into, the, into what's called the Wide Oak Writers. Wow. Uh, because of a huge um, live oak that was in Tim's front yard. And uh, we have a anthology of short stories called um, All That We See or Seen, which is um, really referring to what we think is going on in the story and then what is really going on. And each story has a turn like that. They're, they're drawn from 10 different writers and each has, you know, two or three stories in it and they just are amazing stories. You'll go wow when you read them. So we're looking for a publisher. We have it uh, under consideration by two or three and uh, we hope that will be forthcoming. But that's just one thing that was going on and, uh, you know, it's the pluff mud, I guess or the um, the tides of the water. Maybe it's the salt water environment. I don't know. But we just have all of this creativity going on. So we're looking forward to the WOW writers are looking forward to that book being published, um, Anthology of Short Stories being published in the next year, I hope. we hope. Hey, Estelle, can Hello. you hear me now? Yeah. I don't know what happened. Okay. Give me one second to make a couple of changes here. Yep, your call dropped out. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. I'm sorry that that, that happened. Oh, that's all right. Uh, you know, it's not a podcast if it goes perfectly every single time. So <laughs> that's all part of putting on a show like this. So, all right, I we're all back so together. I'm glad now. I was able to dial back in. <laughs> <laughs> I think That's I was going a little long. Maybe it didn't like. Maybe our technology didn't like the fact I was going a yeah. bit long. So <laughs> it may have made some editorial decisions on our collective That's right. behalf there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we're back. <laughs> yes. Well, let's use this as a moment to make a transition and talk about your your pre low country life and specifically your your writing life. When when and where and how did that begin? You are now a writer of fiction and nonfiction and journalism as well. But where does it all start right. for you? Well, I always wanted to be a writer uh, in high school anyway. I, I wanted to live the life of um, of um, Papa Hemingway, of, of um, Ernest Hemingway. Of course, I didn't want to end up like he did, but, uh, you know, I just thought it would be writers get to be in all these places and make a living by, you know, going to the bullfights in Spain and then fishing in Cuba and living in Key West. In being in Paris, you know, at the time when so many creative people were there. So I was intrigued with the life of a writer 
uh, I'm not sure. I don't think I even read Ernest Hemingway at that time. I just wanted to be like him. Um, a Movable Feast was an important book for me. Um, I read that, I guess, in, in, high, in college. Uh, and I just thought this would be just terrific to live like this and be around and simulating people. Um, that was the goal. I went to college on a full scholarship. I went to St. Mary's College. I was fortunate enough to um, have a working scholarship and to be exposed to a lot of really good writers um, and uh, academic people um, and editors. Sister Madaliva, the president, was a poet, and uh, Bennett Cerf was her editor. And I served, because I was uh, working in food service, I served him dinner. Um, and, you know, we had a like a two-second conversation. Um, Helen uh, Hayes was a very good friend of Sister Madaliva, and uh, she sponsored mm-hmm. a lot of uh, wonderful theater at uh, St. Mary's. So I had a lot of exposure to that, was in the theater, um, you know, just as little as I could. I didn't have much time, but, you know, we'd play prop, do props or whatever, but it was really fascinating with storytelling. Um, I knew I was going to be telling stories. I just knew that was going to happen. Um, had an experience um, my in my high school, which was a Catholic high school, small, very small, because there were so few Catholics in our area. Mr. Parks, our English teacher, knew that I wanted to be a writer, and he took me to meet John Popham, who was the managing editor of the Chattanooga Times. The Chattanooga Times mm-hmm. was a precursor mm-hmm. to the New York Times. It actually came before the New York Times. had the same masthead, the same columnist, a lot of emphasis on international news. Um, so that was where I was learning journal, uh, what journalism was, and Mr. Park took me to see John Popham. And John Popham had been um, in World War II, and he was an, an incredible uh, reporter. And he brought tears to my eyes talking about the responsibility of a writer, of a reporter, to get the news. And, of course, mm-hmm. what was on our minds was, you know, um, the horrible uh, cause of World War II and the, the, the Holocaust and the Jews. And so it was um, very, and, and many other people, Poles and any undesirable was, you know, fair game for domination and destruction. So I um, went to college at St. Mary's and, again, like I said, was exposed to a lot of people that were in the news. Um, Dr. Dr. King actually came to St. Mary's, uh, not St. Mary's, Notre Dame. We were across the street, so we went to Notre Dame things. Um, uh, you know, quite a number of people who were, uh, one of the Berrigan brothers spoke. Um, there, were, there was just a lot of activity. There was a lot of growing concern about um, uh, the war in Vietnam. People were becoming conscientious objectors. I was in the middle of a very exciting time there. Oh, the um, to Mississippi, the voting efforts, all kinds of uh, desegregation efforts. Uh, I knew people who were in those. So it was um, just fodder for me. Uh, I was able to get a, uh, some courses at Northwestern in Chicago. I, I left St. Mary's before I had my degree. Although my degree came from there, I took my electives in different schools in Chicago, including Northwestern University. I took journalism classes there. and. Um, when I got good sense and left the, the frozen north to come south, I went. I moved to Atlanta to, and lived with my sister for a short time and then got an apartment with my cousin. Uh, I got a job with UPI as a reporter. And I handled a lot of the desk work. I wasn't always out with Dr. King, but I was covering through relays of news uh, a lot of what was happening with the Poor People's March and the marches in Memphis. 
of course, he was assassinated, and I covered with other people, many other people, the um, subsequent actions. Um, I became um, aware that I had a social life I wanted to be involved in, and the work at UPI was not conducive to that. I was mostly working late hours and decided to go into public information work, and that led me into other positions. Um, But I came back to writing many years later. Um, I had become a management trainer um, with a master's in psychology. I did a lot of uh, training in various capacities, uh, but still was interested. I was always going towards what was in the news or what was of import. I helped um, with a taxi cab I was the staff for a taxi cab um, effort to get the drivers who were just starving on the what they could get of the little bit of um, work that was there at the airport organized to where they became a, a more involved system, um, like a certificate system, kind of like the medallions in New York. Anyway, I was always in civil rights in some capacity or I was always in that area. Um, at some point, I decided I would like to write but it was going to take some um, time. Uh, it, there happened to be a time when I had some physical um, ailments that caused me to have to stop working full time. And I wasn't going to let that just sit there. You know, I had to be doing something. So I started reading and said, this is going to be, this is, I want this to count for something. So I started writing the novel. And that was Abbeville Farewell, my first book. So that was my first start. I decided fiction rather than nonfiction. Um, I don't know. Did you ever, when you've been writing, have you ever had that dilemma yourself, Jonathan? I don't know if that's. Oh, all all the time, as I'm sure Pat Conroy did as well. I mean, trying to to yeah. uh, deal with memoir, autobiographical fiction, and and you know, you you get more room to play. You can make up your own rules in fiction. You you can build a world, right. as Pat liked to say. So it is very liberating as well to sort of have that. But there's something to be said for telling um, an empowering, important true story as a true story, as you certainly did in Mm -hmm. Seed of South Sudan, for example, um, Mm -hmm. which is a a book that you've uh, you've presented with Majak for the for the Conroy Center. I think that was 2018, if I remember right, at First Presbyterian Church in Hilton Head. Would you talk a little bit about how you became interested in, in The Lost Boys and how that book came to be? Be glad to. Um, the, the, I took the fiction turn, and it was actually historical fiction. The first book was historical fiction mm-hmm. because um, I went to a bookstore where they had used books, and you know the lady wouldn't let me trade books. You know, like you could trade most books, but could, but you couldn't trade books for some of these books. And I, I just said, why? She said, these are the classics. Every one of them was fiction. You know, mm-hmm. Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. or. Um, Margaret Mitchell, or um, you know the uh, the Greek, um, the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, uh, anything that was really valuable was fiction. <laughs> so I thought I'm going to work on this book. I'm going to be. I'm, I want it to be have staying power. So you know the the narrative, this, the inventive narrative, is what I wanted to do. But I did. I did, and I've always based mine somewhat on some true true facts, some true true history. Um, Majak was um, among many um, South Sudanese um, refugees who settled in Clarkston. And the Sudanese refugees were coming from the war in Sudan where Sudan was warring on its own people. Sudan, the country of Sudan, the uh, headquarters in Khartoum is mostly Arab. 
and Muslim, and it was warring on those who were not uh, Arab and Muslim. On the west, they were fighting people in Darfur. In the south, they were fighting the Africans who were Christian or traditional religion. It was a horrible war. Majak was seven when he ran for his life, and that happened with all these boys. They had started attending our church, and a pastoral associate who was working with her with them was named um, Jenny Egan. They called her Mama Jenny. Today, you know, she's still Mama Jenny. She's very, she's passed away a couple of years ago, but um, people, she, she was our own mother, Teresa. And she had organized the boys um, to help um, them raise money for their people back home. She actually went with them to South Sudan. And so she called me in her office with Majak and said, um, I know you know I've been working with the Lost Boys. I want you to help Majak. He's got 100 pages and he wants to turn it into a book. Well, that 100 pages took about two years for us to un- unravel because, um, <laughs> first of all, getting used to his the way he spoke, which was you know, very un- understandable to him and to other Lost Boys, but not to me and, and a lot of other people, so we had to slow it down. Finally, I taped him, and we, we came up with a story, and we sent a proposal to McFarland Books, which is a traditional publisher of books. Actually, they publish books um, that are used in research um, that are in libraries, whatever subject you want to know about, transportation, black history, um, American history, military history, whatever. McFarland is a a key provider of those. So they wanted a book about the Lost Boys experience. So um, after us working those two years, we then spent another two years fact-checking, building, um, you know, our picture files and and things like that. And... um, Majak and I turned to a graphic artist from Channel 11 doing some freelance work to help us with the maps. There were no maps. Uh, and, you know, you really couldn't find anything about South Sudan uh, or Sudan. It became South Sudan as a result of the end of the war, finally. But um, if you went on Google Earth, there was nothing to see because it's rural. It's mostly villages, rural, pastoral uh, areas, um, you know, mud huts, mud, mud and... Um, wood spear you know like not even trees that much but um heavy grasses uh were what they constructed their houses out of and still do so it was a very different world um but we took it on and um Majak was such a good describer of what was around him and the flora and fauna and um you know what the paths were like they didn't have roads they still don't have roads mostly um and so he wanted to have water wells built in his neighborhood back where he came from. They didn't have access to water. And most of their time was spent just walking for water and then waiting in line for water if somebody had a pump and waiting for your turn. It might be two or three hours there and you'd already get three or four hours on the road. So it was an all-day thing to get water. Just pitiful. And, of course, there's a lot of um, maternal deaths and early childhood deaths because of the lack of water and disease. So um, he and I wrote the book together. We got our um, the, the person who did our um, maps was Brian Hendricks, and we just pulled together people in my neighborhood, people in my church, people that um, Brian knew, people that Majak knew, a lot of those. We just came together and created a nonprofit organization called Wells for Hope, and we're wellsforhope.org if you want to look us up on the Internet. And we have a Facebook page called Wells for Hope slash Seed of South Sudan. The book is we called Seed of South Sudan, 
because Madrox's group, they, they ended up after years of fleeing from one country to another to find safety, they ended up in Kakuma um, refugee camp in uh, Kenya. And it, it has held many people over the years that they're in the highest number of people staying there when he was there was like 80,000. Not all of those were South Sudanese. They were could have been Somali, uh, Congolese, uh, people fleeing other um, dif- desperate situations. But all through a program of the federal government, they started a flight, um, a, an airlift of these guys, starting with the old, the, those who had been in the camps the longest. Majak, from the age of seven, he was now getting to be 20, 19, uh, 20. He and other guys, and some girls, if they were girls, they were usually the younger girls, and they were in, um, they were placed in foster situations because girls in that country always stay with the families, and if they don't have families, then they're going to place them with the family. But the guys came in groups of three and four to an apartment. But I think in Clarkson there were probably eventually about 150 guys, um, and then there were lots of people who um, went to other uh, locations all over the country. Um, many cities, California, New York, Kansas. Uh, they were in Oswego, New York, where we were. They were in um, Cleveland, just everywhere. So every lots of cities got some of these guys living with. To a person, they became very um, loyal, hardworking, persistent workers. Um, to this day, Madraga is still working. It's been like 18 years now. He's been working with um, one employer in Carrie and Daughters. It's a female-run plumbing company, and he's been a plumber's assistant for 18 years. That's, he, he's not the expensive guy. He's the one that, you know, does the heavy work. Um, but he's done that for 18 years. And they, bless their hearts, have given him the opportunity to have his job back when he goes overseas, which he does about every two years. And through these visits every two years, we have – cobbled together his taking money from us that we raised from the community and all over the country, really, to build wells. They cost the same here as they do there, same same price. You know, you don't get any mm-hmm. savings. It's a deep water well. It's a deep water well. It's not a sand well. It's deep in the earth, and it's hand-pumped, no solar, nothing. There's no electricity, and there's very little technology to repair something that's solar. So... We just keep it as simple as possible. Now we're on our fifth. He just built the fifth one yet um, on World Water Day. He's over there now. Um, he postponed his visit this time for a year because of the pandemic, but he built one on um, – it, it, it finished up on World Water Day uh, Sunday – or Monday, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And another one will go in very soon. We're a small operation, but we just go on, you know, people who know people who know people and um, – we just try and bring hope to this area. It's east of Rumbek in what is the country now of South Sudan. And um, it's brought changes to people's lives. It's an area of the country where they are not starving. They are not, it's not, um, it doesn't have a lot of ethnic conflict between the different tribes. It's mostly Dinka tribes. Um, and as one philanthropist said, you know, this is what, the people are doing in these communities. They are reaping the peace dividend. They are peaceful people, and they are able to use the water to build their own well, um, income. I won't say wealth. They now have cash. Up to now, it's been cattle, 
mm-hmm. is the is the uh, currency. But now some of the women are able to get cash for their vegetables in the market, and they can pay for medicines and things like that that were unheard of before. So we we feel very pleased and very proud that we've been able to help that happen. What a remarkable undertaking but, this this whole project yeah. is this, this collaborative well, effort. Yeah. Go ahead, please. It was, it was. I was writing Rising Fawn at the time, and I just, mm-hmm. um, I just thought this is such a story that needs to be told. And then, as a writer, I had an, another motive, and that was, I wanted to be published by a traditional publisher. The first time mm-hmm. my book Abbeville Farewell, I, I set up my own publishing company called um, Other Voices Press, and I published it under that uh, that name. But it was basically self-published, and I learned a lot about marketing through working with Majok. I can't how much I've learned in terms of um, growing empathy for people, parts of the world I don't understand or didn't understand. And I, I think that's one of the values of just reading the book, Seed of South Sudan, is that you get an idea of what that life is like. called Seed of South Sudan because these boys didn't want to leave their countries, but their elders said they were in refugee camps. There wasn't a future for them. They were going to be in refugee camps all their lives. Um, unless things changed. And um, the elders said, you need the skills that this new country is going to need. So you are the seed of South Sudan. So many of them have returned. Um, Some of them have by, I don't know what you call it when you have two countries, but you're in, some of them are even part of the year they're in the United States and the rest of the uh, year they're in South Sudan in the various capacities. So it's amazing how this... um, our country has helped them, their being here and them being who they are, the very persistent, loyal, um, I can't say enough about how honest they are and how how they really help our kids understand how lucky they are and what persistence takes and what patience is all about. Um, after they give to our country, they're going back to their country with some skills and funds and, and things. So there's a good good exchange going on there. And it's, it's just re- it's wonderful to see. There's a beautiful spirit of generosity that seems to have informed the whole project. And I've talked to writers many times, including on this show, about having a story choose them. And it seems like this, mm-hmm. is, this, this was a story that, that chose you, that found its way to you, that found its way to the right writer in the right time. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you were, you know, working on Rising Fawn as, during part of this, and sort of picked up some lessons along the way that informed that process as well. Because this might be a good moment as we reach the halfway point in the show here to transition and, and talk about Rising Fawn a little more than we have thus far as well. It's, it's an amazing yeah. novel, Estelle. It really is. I mean, it has so much to say about identity, and it takes me back to a moment early in this show when I was reading your bio and you started talking about yourself in, in third person saying, oh, she's done a lot. But this is, uh, <laughs> this is you know, a novel that sort of makes us rethink how, just how precarious our identity is, how easily it can be stolen in, in a number of meanings of that word, and how easily it can be upended and, and sort of take us to a moment where we have to rethink who we are and, and who we might yet become, because that's very much what happens to Claire, your protagonist, on, on multiple levels in the course of the novel. And it's so 
beautifully handled in in a in a concise sort of really plot driven novel as well. So I just I applaud you for it. I really enjoyed getting to read it and then reread it in preparation for our conversation tonight. So uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to read a little bit from it and then we can we can talk about it in a little more detail. That sounds great. Well, Claire's a person, as they kept saying in Oh Brother, Where Out There, she's in a tight place. She's in a tight Mm. spot. (laughs) She's in a dilemma. Her dilemma is that her husband is acting funny. She's kind of thinking maybe he's got somebody on the side. Meanwhile, she is opening up her mail or trying to find her mail, can't find it, calls her credit card company to find out about her last statement and found out that they think she's in West in um, Southern California. Well, she's in Atlanta. She can't be in Southern California. Um, but somebody has racked up $10,000 in cash advances, having stolen her credit card identity. And not only that, she, her husband gets upset about that, but then he really gets upset when he finds, he, they both find out that somebody has taken out a home equity line on their home in their name and cashed it out to the tune of $200,000. And her husband is in business with his dad on some projects. He works for himself as a stockbroker, but he's, there's a lot of family money and, you know, they, they do deals together and he gets real upset and threatens to, you know, actually is kicking around the home telling him to go find another place to live, get your stuff together. You know, I, you know, I want you out of here. So she's, she's in a tight spot. So, her only option is to call an attorney, which she does. In Chapter 3, she's talking to um, a law firm. Upstairs in her office at home, in a house that was stripped of any sound, Claire took a breath and punched the law firm's number. I was recommended by Kitty Kramer, she told the assistant on the line. It's about a separation. Separation or divorce, the woman inquired. Uh, I don't know. A moment later, Sherry Goldstein was on the line. I'll be glad to meet with you, she said quickly. Her voice was surprisingly husky, like that of an older woman. Bring financial statements. I don't know if I have anything like that. Get them. I'm guessing Kitty Kramer sent you. You're in deep trouble. You don't have a moment to lose with this. I don't know if I want to go for the jugular. That's all I know to go for. I'm for you, kiddo, and if you don't want a fair settlement, you need to find another attorney. Claire felt pressure oozing from the woman's voice. Her words were sharp, seeming to give off sparks like knives hitting a rolling tire rim. Maybe I'll do that. Look, honey, Sherry's voice softened and she slowed down. The knife was off the tire rim. I get calls all the time from women who want to divorce their husbands. I'm a breadwinner myself. I can't make a living with you ambivalent about what you want to do with your life. I guess it's hitting me a little hard what I need to do. You have a lot to think about. I'm in business to help people. The way I help people is by going into a courtroom. It's nothing personal, but you need to think some more about what you really want to do here. If you want me to represent you, make an appointment. Wait, I see I have an opening at 1230 today. If you want that, let my office know right away. Sherry Goldstein hung up and Claire sat, feeling warm all over, looking at the phone. She was floored by the prickly, jabbing voice, the combativeness of the woman. Then she remembered Kitty Kramer's statement about getting a good, strong lawyer. Claire tried to picture who Willie would get. It would be somebody who'd go for the jugular. Claire's body shook, a line dropped there. Claire's body shook as she approached the large entry hall in the offices of Sherry Goldstein. 
She walked slowly, hoping she'd be able to stop her body from feeling it was flying down a wild ride at Six Flags. She brought some basic information, but nothing like financial statements. To get those, she would have to go to Willie's office, and he had locked the door to that room. She shivered as she recalled Willie's arctic manner the night before in their kitchen. Now she tried to think of details of Willie's and his family's businesses. Did they sell their interest in the apartment complex in Norcross? They frequently talked about REITs and other investments, but she found it too complicated to keep up with. Now it made sense, though, the demissive way her father-in-law spoke to her, the one time she attempted to find out more about their business. You don't need to worry your little head with this, Dan Clem had said. She'd walked in on a conversation between him and Willie, and she asked about the REITs and how they worked. They were at a family party. Dan had smiled and pushed her on to Grace, her mother-in-law. Grace had a grim look at the time. They were in Grace's large European-style kitchen with gleaming stainless appliances and a wrought iron light fixture that was more like a heavy chandelier. Grace never spoke about financial matters. She laughed after a moment, shook her blonde head, and said, too confusing for me. Now it's clear why her in-laws didn't want her to bother. Claire was beginning to feel for the first time that she was a minicar after a wreck with a big rigged truck. Post-impact, she now felt her arms broken, her hips dislocated, and bloody teeth falling onto the ground. Willie had her good because she couldn't say for certain what he had, and that would be crucial in any proceedings for separation or divorce. She should have been less trusting, less ignorant about what his resources were. She still wondered if his anger was about the credit mess or whether another woman, that mysterious laughing phone caller, was to blame for the truck wreck. Thank oh, you yeah. for that reading. Yes, I mean, that, life, that is oh, great way, insight. She's a life coach. Yeah, she's a, pro, she's a professional life coach, and here Which she is. Which is such a wonderful detail. <laughs> this, is, this is a woman whose job is to sort of help people find their own sense of identity and direction, and here she is losing all of that. You know, so very right. suddenly, as as we were talking about just before we went live, the whole novel unfolds in a period of a little more than, than two weeks, and Claire's world is just completely upended, completely reset in the course of what happens in, in that relatively small period of time. In the course of, of putting the novel together, structuring it, did, did you always know that would be the case, that these would be sort of rapid-fire mo- moments in which so many things happen so quickly to one person? I I wanted it to be compressed because there was a lot that happened, um, and I wanted there to be enough development. That is one skill that I think I learned in the second novel as opposed to the first. The first novel was more um, building characters around events that I knew took place. In this case, Mm -hmm. I was building the characters, and um, I wanted there to be a sense of – where she had to go, what she had to do moment by moment, because the events were happening, and they did happen very rapidly. Um, it, You know, probably in real life, she wouldn't have been able to travel that far in Atlanta in that short period of time. <laughs> but, um, you know, she sees her mother in a nursing home. Her mother's had a, uh, in a, she's in a near coma. You know, she goes to see her friend Helene and just happens to drop by. Well, in Atlanta, real life, you would be in traffic for a long, long time. <laughs> so this is definitely fiction. But um, I want there's, the, there's that movie, Michael Clayton, uh, with um, Scott and George's, 
who's our famous George. Um, That's uh, George Harris. Clooney who's in that, I believe. George right? Clooney, thank you. There's, yes. there's mm-hmm. some music in it. I have that music in my mind. It's, it's a xylophone kind of uh, backing in it. And there's a lot of um, things happening to him as a corporate uh, lawyer. And he's, he's challenged to, to tell on his people and what's happening. And he's risking a lot. And they're, you know, possibly run off the road or maybe even worse. And I wanted that kind of immediacy. I wanted, um, I wanted people to, to go wow at this book. And compressing the time was part of it. The wow factor was um, I, I wanted in this book to have people have a sense of just the utter um, chaos that it caused in this person to lose everything that she knew, um, mm-hmm. her relationship, mm-hmm. her family. Well, her family was kind of a question mark anyway, but, um, you know, to have economic problems like, you know, this identity theft, that happens to a lot of people. Well, on top of that, what happens to people are these mortgage fraud situations occasionally. Now, most people work it out because, you know, their their insurance, you know, covers it or, or the bank, you know, recoups from somebody else or the bank is left hanging, but, you know, they, they eventually recoup. Um, these kinds of things can happen so easily. They say a lot of people don't have enough savings you know, that they're just a paycheck away from the street. That is a real thing for a lot of people, um, and particularly for women. Uh, Rosemary Danielle is someone that I took workshops with. Rosemary Danielle runs the Zona Rosa group in Savannah, and at the time I was in her group, it was in Atlanta. She has it in both places, and and we and she talked about, yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like a, a bag lady sometimes, you know. You have all this income, but you know, you still feel like a bag lady. You're kind of like a bag lady. You don't have enough. You're afraid you don't have enough money to really cover everything. Um, so that's a feeling I think a lot of people have, um, even with these these high incomes. Just a little bit of. I spent some time in the banking industry as a training uh, director and a member, and a training and personnel director actually. And I remember discussion in the bank about you know, this one particular location in the city where there was a branch and those people were always overdraft and that was probably one of the most wealthy suburbs around. They were mm-hmm. but they were always overdrawing their accounts. And I thought, you know, everybody's kind of in that situation where they, things could go south very quickly. So, it doesn't um, take much. We're we're all sort of on the cusp of those moments. Uh, you know, one right. mistake, one one unexpected moment in your life and it, it completely changes everything. In Claire's right. case, uh, she she sort of moves uh, from this very modern world of Atlanta with these very modern technology problems of, of having her identity stolen, her credit card stolen, and, and money taken out in her name. And she descends into this world uh, of, that sort of feels timeless, that, that is where her, her own past is waiting to be discovered in, in Rising Fawn because she comes to discover that, that her mother has this rental property that she knows nothing about. And she has family members that that she knows nothing about and sort of, you know, travels into this world that feels completely foreign to her life in Atlanta. Talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about, about, you know, the realities of that, how how you personally came to know about this this landscape that you put Claire into and sort of what happens to her there. I'd be glad to. Um, I grew up in Chattanooga. I was fifth of ten children. My parents were frequently taking us in a car 
to places where we could run and be and not have to pay uh, admission fees and, and things like that. In those days, you didn't you made your own fun. We went to parks all the time. We we lived near the Chickamauga Battlefield. We would go, you know, running across the fields. That was a national park. Um, there were lots of Tennessee uh, national park, uh, Tennessee state parks. I remember going to Cloudland Canyon, which is a Georgia um, department, um, Georgia. Um, state park and that's up on the mountain um, just these wonderful natural areas as a child we would go to something called Plum Nelly in the same area as Cloudland Canyon there was this ledge called Johnson's Crook and there was a uh, lino cut artist um, who held a uh, festival every every fall and it was became one of the first um, outdoor art festivals in the South. It was called Plum Nelly because it was Plum out of Tennessee and Nelly out of Georgia. And so I love that. You, you mentioned that in, in, you know, I've mentioned to people from Indiana and they said, yeah, we drove down there to see that. You know, it was very famous. And it gave rise, I think it gave rise to the Piedmont Art Festival in Atlanta, which mm. is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there were these artists in these little places living on the edge of the mountain. Um, I remembered that, and I visited there since then. There was a uh, potter who taught many of the southeastern potters by the name of Charles Counts, and Charles was married to Ruby Nail Counts, and she was a weaver. They were uh, very close uh, to that particular cabin, which was literally on a ledge, um, and 2,000 feet below was Lookout Valley. So we... um, I spent some time there in the 70s and um, followed some of the folk art and pottery movements. Um, um, so those were quite familiar to me, and I've visited there since. And um, now there are a lot of very well-off artists who are building permanent homes there that are quite different from Fanny Menon's cabin. Fanny Menon was the line of artist who was the lead of this. But I was just fascinated with it. Another thing we did as family, before people had discovered it, um, relatives had uh, discovered this. Um, it was treaty, It was railroad property, so there wasn't an admission, there wasn't a gate. It was just an old railroad grade that you would drive in and you were, walk, you were driving by this beautiful rock creek, big boulders lots of rushing water, and then that fell into a cascade into a crater lake that was turquoise. It was so deep. Then that ran off the uh, mountain. That creek ran off from that lake and dropped a 100 feet, and it was like something out of Hawaii. These were very wild areas, not fenced in or anything. Um, And so this is where we had family reunions a lot. My mother was one of eight. I guess, yeah, there were eight in her family. So all of those children, you know, all of our cousins, we were a big bunch of people. We were there. That's where we went for um, our reunions. So it was um, later that land became desecrated by people um, doing their thing. Uh, It was also a place where even when I was there, they were dropping cars off the cliffs nearby as these strippers, car uh, stripping gangs would steal cars from those parking lots that were surrounding the new shopping malls. And so they'd come to these remote areas to get rid of the cars. It was extremely remote. Um, But, you know, we knew it was there and we knew how to get there, so we went there. Um, But then while I was away in college, it was really being desecrated. I didn't see it again until probably the 
2000s when um, a family acquired the land and then they conti- they started spending years taking out all the old baby diapers, you know, the trash, <laughs> oh, just w- tra- mm-hmm. tires. I helped remove some of the tires out of the creek. I didn't, I wasn't part of the real cleanup, but now it is in, it's called the Lula Lake Land Trust, and you can visit there twice a month, and it's very um, well managed and protected now. But just the awesomeness of that waterfall, I mean, it's like something out of Hawaii or, or some really exotic place. I just thought, when I was growing up in Tennessee, I couldn't wait to leave. And I cannot believe now I'm so drawn to those areas that that were just part of what we experienced. So I wanted that wow factor. I wanted people to be drawn to something wild and um, awesome and um, part of nature. And I've always felt like, well, nature has really been a place for me to go. I won't say it was early on, but later in my life, my mother would say, you weren't interested in nature at all when you were growing up. That's true. Um, I wanted to go to Chicago or New York. Um, and when I became conscious, and probably in my 40s and 50s, I started to really, really pay attention. I became a birder. I became, um, you know, I did a lot of hiking in the wilderness and um, became much, 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 much more attentive to it. So I slowed down and I started, you know, paying attention to some of these things, and that's made me a, a better writer. But it's also something I wanted to convey about the uh, the duality of the beauty of nature. So often it's it's cobble, cobbled with some of the really saddest things too. There was a double murder at um, Lula Lake in the early 70s, I believe. Um, person never brought to justice exactly. Um, it's just kind of sad that those things exist. But, you know, on the other hand, for Claire, it becomes quite quite a thing. It has a saving grace of, um, you know, redemption. And not just redemption for her, but for other people as well. So that's kind of a message I wanted to, to get across. Mm-hmm. As Claire is taken out to to see the waterfall and the lake and this amazing natural world that you describe so beautifully, and, and then gets to you know learn that there's this uh, there's this sort of darkness to it as well. There's these mm-hmm. uh, insurance bluff, as you call it, where the car stripping is going on, and all these sort of sort of uh, moments of darkness that have also happened in this world. She says it's it's always mayhem mixed with beauty. That's uh, that's the line mm-hmm. in the book, and I think that sort of captured it beautifully. And that's something that yeah. uh, that Ron Rash and, and uh, even our Pat Conroy, of course, tried to capture as well. This this notion that there's this beautiful natural world, and then there's what what we uh, as human beings do do to it and do in it. But this yeah. also gets to, to something else I want to talk about that Ron and Pat both uh, write about when when Claire goes into this world and sort of really starts to think that this is the world that she is from, that this is a part of her. It reminded me of lines that both of those writers had in, in the world made straight. Ron says, "Landscape is destiny," meaning you know where we come from, mm-hmm. where we are, makes up so much of who we are. And Pat sort of captured this too in one of his most famous lines, the opening line of *Prince of Tides*: "My wound is geography." So, mm-hmm. what what were you hoping to get at by taking Claire out of her very safe, very predictable up until you know? this moment, Atlanta home, putting her in this natural world where she's actually from, where her people are from. 
what were what were yeah. you hoping she would discover about herself by by switching I, her I, geography, her landscape this way? I love historical fiction. You know, I grew up in Chattanooga, and my best friends had had cannons on their front lawns, and you know, we <laughs> we played in the in the in the national parks. Um, you know, it, it, history was just all around. It was just all around. And my dad and mother were very strong on taking us to see these places and helping us know the importance of it. You know, whether it was Warm Springs to see Franklin Delano Roosevelt's home or um, going to uh, Nashville. I mean, can you imagine taking eight or ten kids on a trip? We did that. We went to Nashville. We saw the Hermitage where Andrew Jackson was from. My parents were really um, wanting us to see the historical parts. Um, I think there's some value in people knowing where they come from. There's some um, some tragedies that happen when people don't have the strength of knowing who their people are or where they're from. Uh, on the other hand, like Claire, she has this experience of not, you know, getting her whole life turned around in terms of who she was and where she was from. And she she becomes a resilient person just on her own, um, you know, okay with just herself and just taking it all in. And that's, I think, what I was hoping is that people could see history is important, but it's not important. What's really important is what you do with what you have. And um, I was hoping to get that across that uh, I've had friends who find out through DNA tests that their parents are not who they thought they were, you know, that they're not who they thought they were. And this is, you know, this has happened not just once, but just several different people that I'm familiar with. Um, and it can just be, you know, like one woman thought she was British because her mother was British and, you know, she had to stop drinking tea like she did because her mother was not, not, not anything like that. <laughs> found out. So it, it just kind of uh, throws you, uh, throws you. But um, I would say that I've personally benefited from having a knowledge of at least one side of the family, not necessarily the Irish side. I'm, I'm hoping a sequel will get into more of the Irish history because um, I'd like to know more about it. So like Ken Follett writing Pillars of the Earth, I want to, I want to learn more about cathedrals so I better write a novel. <laughs> you know? And I'd, I'd like to know more about the Irish side, so I'll probably write a novel uh, to sequel this as a sequel to this to learn more about that. But um, I'm, I'm a big believer that the more you know about yourself or your history or the, your, who your people are, the good and the bad, um, the stronger you are. I think of Rick Bragg. Um, I loved all of you but the shouting, but I, I got to hear, um, I got to read and hear uh, Ava's Man first. And it was to me mm-hmm. one of the most perfect mm-hmm. books. How he, how the empathy that he had, and that's, I guess, to answer your question, empathy is what I want to build. I want to have empathy for the person who has income or whatever and loses it all. And for her to have empathy for people who are less like her, you know, the four, ba- the four backs in the, gro- in the grocery store, you know, I want her to have empathy for them. So um, when Rick Bragg talked about his grandfather, and he was a hard-drinking roofer, and I think he was also a um, bootlegger, had a yes. terrible, mm-hmm. terrible uh, alcoholism because, you know, if you're still it, you got to taste it, right, every day. You know? So um, he had such empathy for that man that it was just kind of amazing to me. So that's what writing does is it, it opens these worlds, um, helps us become more empathetic. Uh, Richard Bausch is somebody I took a workshop with. Uh, I have to mention Richard Bausch. I had one workshop with him, but I had several workshops with Carol Lee Lorenzo. 
in Atlanta at the uh, Callenwald uh, Art Center. She now works on her own, but Carol is just great on helping you feel, helping uh, people, the writer create little glimpses of people. And I think, I hope that's what I've been able to do with um, Rising Fawn, for you to get little glimpses of Claire and little glimpses of, of Willie and Helene and all these people and Tony, uh, all these people and their lives and their dilemmas. Um, but anyway, those are those are the kinds of things um, that I look for. When I first was writing my novel, I went to a workshop with Richard Bausch. He was 1995, I think. Oh, the Olympics was coming up, so I wanted to finish this book, you know, have it ready for the Olympics. That didn't happen. But anyway, <laughs> in the process, he, Richard, who, who was teaching a lot of people in his MFA program, so here we were, people who were not part of the MFA program. Um, but he says, you know, when you're writing – you're learning about other people. You're becoming more humane. You're becoming more empathetic. And what could be better than that? That's your whole goal. And whether you publish or not. That's an incredibly high calling. And it seems to be the overarching theme of all of your writing that I've encountered, this idea that we can learn more about one another and therefore about ourselves and become better people not just in our own lives, but in our interactions with, with one another. And that's very much what happens to Claire. We will be very protective of the, the big plot twists of, of the book and not give anything away here. But, you know, she comes out of the other end of this, of this, you know, roughly two and a half week experience, transformed and empowered and much more aware of, of other people in her lives and able to interact with them in, in new ways as well. It is a fantastic novel. I was delighted to discover in the acknowledgments and then again here on our podcast that you have a sequel in mind and that gives us all something else to look forward to down the line, too. I, I hope that's uh, quick in, in the making and not a long time coming, because I'm excited to see it. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so, but I don't, you know, this one got delayed by two hurricanes, uh, about with cancer, um, six years working on um, Seed of South Sudan and then creating Wells for Hope and building wells. That, that was a long period of time. Um, yeah. When the pandemic came along and um, I got had time to get with publishers I'd contacted, they said, oh, we sent you an acceptance letter. It must have gone on your junk mail. Uh, and I thought about when I wanted to have it published and, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic, I thought, well, it's it's withstood everything else. This is no problem. We'll just go ahead and do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm glad so that, you did. That, we... Yeah, persistence oh, is only... what I'm, I'm made of. That's what any good writer, any good artist needs. We're about to run out of time here. The hour has yeah. gone very quickly. Uh, I've enjoyed talking with you as always, Estelle. And Thank your you, novel John. is Rising Fawn. Uh, let's shout out your, your website one last time here before we run out of time. It's EstelleFordWilliamson.com with a hyphen between Ford and Williamson. And you can always learn more about our nonprofit, Pat Conroy Literary Center at patconroyliterarycenter.org.org. Our podcast live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center will be back on April 21st, uh, which is effectively the one-year anniversary of the show, when my guest Yay. will be Susan Cerulean, author of the environmentalist memoir, I Have Been Assigned the Single Bird. Uh, thank you so much, mm -hmm. Estelle. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Jonathan. This has just been wonderful. I've learned so much. I sure appreciate you giving me the